Okay, so uh, welcome back to another episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast. And today I have a very special guest who's done a lot for the industry. Uh, from AT&T to uh, the New York Department of Transportation, Susie has, uh, has seen the things that are challenging, challenging every stakeholder in the industry. How do utility owners manage their assets and what are the challenges they are facing? Uh, so without further ado, uh, Susie, how, uh, how are you, do, you doing today? Uh, thank you. This is really quite fun to be here. And I've had a chance to look through your back catalog. You have managed to collect quite the slice of oral industry history. And it's been fabulous to listen to everyone with a lot of gray hair explaining what's changed from when the world was analog when we started and how stunningly digital it is these days on so many levels. So this is wonderful to have a chance to talk with you and perhaps give us some background, Susie. I'm I'm in I got here through I think a slightly different route from most of your participants. Uh, the my interest was in communications control and command, real-time data. So it was uh, sending people to the moon, right? I wanted to be an astronaut. So NASA's center was my, one of my first big images. And then I went to AT&T and they had the network operations center and that's all real-time data. And again, the scope and scale of it is, and distances involved in both cases were very different. So you, Throughout my career, I've had this fatal attraction with bleeding edge technologies and with ones that were of large scope and scale and usually needed fairly large organizations in order to design the equipment, the tools, and not only install it, but operate it after you'd built it. So by starting with own company and watching the technology change over 40 years, my specialty was operation support systems. I built the networks that said, okay, now that you've got them in the ground, how do we leverage them to uh, keep them operational? So when you have uh, several of your guests talking about software as a service, uh, really dial tone was the first one, right? That's yeah. So as that changed and now we're completely streaming and digital and all of those uh, physical layer. Does, uh, does uh, OSI model mean anything in, in your industry? Uh, uh, no, it, I'm not familiar. The Open Standards OSI. Institute, so it used to have a model that had seven layers and the physical layer was really, how does it all plug together? It's, it's down to what pin on what jack, right? So when you're building a network, you have to pay attention to those things. So your engineering record isn't the engineering record that you might have where you have a physical scope on the ground, right? So many miles by so many miles, whatever the surveyed area is. Your engineering is actually coded so that you start in one part of the world and end in another. And along the way, the equipment that allows it to do that is documented for you. So you could have a stack of basically eight by 10 cards that you flipped in a deck as you follow the circuit across the country. Very disconcerting to get the scale right. And so 
my background has started with that level of engineering record and scale of detail. You had to be able to get it from an office building in San Francisco down through their risers into the street, into a central office, into the first test board, back down onto the street or up to the microwave tower on the top. Then it would spin off, go to the next city, be discombobulated, put back together. And this is just circuit switch. This isn't packets. <laughs> and that's why yeah. when uh, we'll come back to packet headers, but all of this information, it knows how it's being routed. And that engineering document for that call in real time is the metadata of what's happening. It's keeping track of it. And then you could get down into the physical descriptions of each device or better yet, we just whipped it out of the wall, said, oh, I need that part. And you slammed another circuit pack back in the wall. So it's not much different than that these days, though we're all saying, oh, good, just flip it to a working place instead and we'll get around to repairing it later. Or we can't make our service delivery confidence intervals, which were down to Six Sigma and lots of nines at that point. So if you're a financial data services company, you're effectively going to pay your service provider to be up always, right? And when that yeah. didn't turn out to be true after 9-11, well, there's another scurry. Right? Because the reliability that we build into our networks is directly correlated to how much it costs you to do that. Because now you need two right-of-ways into a building. So if the one, ha right, you have to have data centers. And, you could, and you could find the way. Right, exactly. Yeah. So my, my interest in GIS uh, started early when I was working for a cable company breaking into the CLAC market, which was the competitive local exchange company, trying to compete with the incumbent Belk system. So as you could tell from a lot of your guests, in many ways since AT&T's divestiture in the early 80s and the introduction of fabulous new technologies, um, Really, the industry's been reeling. A lot of mergers, acquisitions, which matters more, the carrier, the content, who's, as my one of my ex-bosses used to say, uh, everybody's in a scurry to find the P. It's like a shell game. You know, where's the profit, right? And one of the things that I think this audience is particularly interested in is none of this would work without right-of-way at all, right? It's all predicated on right-of-way. And right away of still a public holding for the moment. Yeah. There is private right away. Well, um, I love the attention that uh, your one guest gave to how different the last mile of being rural is, right? I live on a farm. My full intent is to be able to run the world from here, from the farm, right? That was, that's a 40 year lifelong goal, right? I, yeah. My technology means I don't have to be anywhere. I'm one of those people that's in a strange mode that says, oh my God, it took a worldwide epidemic before you saw the adoption of the tools that I've been working for and my life to, to enable, right? Zoom is, was picked a grab, was picked a phone in the early 18, in the 1980s. Yeah. So 
it's like watching the imagination of a lot of nerdy engineers self-realize itself, right? You know, it's like they say, oh, the the science and the engineering has its own life. I said, no, no, it's all, you know. And so there's been a lot of it over the last 40 years. Uh, a lot of the business models, I think, are still trying to prove themselves in. And it'll all come down to one way or the other, how we treat our right of way and our local forces who know how to put this stuff together. So because time to emergency matters, big part of my background was sustainability uh, for the network. It was building loops. So if one side went down, the other side could come back up, maybe not 100%, but you controlled traffic. If you lost San Francisco to an earthquake, you had the ability to shut down the service so that it was outbound only because they're the ones in trouble. Aunt Bertha can wait to find out how nephew Johnny is, right? So you could handle your emergency. A lot of that tradition really has was there in the inertia of a lot of our uh, companies. But now because of regulation and what everybody does, how we do it, it's who pays for 911 these days? How does that happen? You used to come out of local landlines, right? A tax on that. So everybody scurries around. How are we going to, how are we going to underwrite our support services? Oh my God, 911 now has, has to handle cell calls and you have to triangulate location based on towers or some, something smart in the phone that's reading the GPS and says, I'm here. That guy can't talk right now. He hit the panic button. Right. Yeah. So I'm going off a little bit, but I think it's important for your viewers to understand that I've never come at this from a completely commercial business because I started in the regulatorily compliant industry. Right. We had obligations to the public we were supposed to fulfill. And then we were the only game in town. So our clients just. You know, you're going to have that one extra nine. You're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. You're Boeing and you're going to say, it's 1990 and I need 45 meg of bandwidth between point A and point B to carry our cat. I don't care that you only use that internally. I need to buy it from you because now I need first big bandwidth, right? So how do I get that from there, from where they are up in Seattle down to Huntsville, Alabama? How, do, how does that happen? So as we've grown, we've needed to be very adaptable with our tools. And one of the big mistakes, from my perspective, is the habit of proprietary information and not going for integration. Interop was a tremendous, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it's a conference that long ago set the goal that everybody's kit and software ought to be able to work with everybody else's kit and software. So they took on a great big, huge convention room and they put up a local network and they said, okay, guys, prove it. I want your stuff to work on that guy's printer and you're wired up, show it. So that when they go home and they, there are no surprises, everybody knows that they can communicate. And this again is the bottom three layers of the model. Can I just pass data back and forth successfully between us? And that's only grown over time for interoperability. We ended up with uh, markup languages 
you know, that's how we got printers to work. So new standards were adopted either de facto and usually by the industry, right? There was no legal body that was twisting their tails to do it. They just realized they'd make more money if they found a common ground, right? Ethernet, let's just all go there. It's no longer proprietary. We, you know, it's a standard you can build to. And a lot of that, it comes down to documentations and standards, but it's, as you can see, it's a different, it's another layer of interoperability, right? It's even smaller than underground. It's how it all comes together. It was the first fiber optic welds. How do we do that? How do we do those joins, right? What's the technology for that? But you actually have to get it out in the field to where you're burying it. And the people who do it have to understand what they're doing. So it's a lot of information to keep organized. And my point with that would be, it keeps changing. So you need an information system that allows you to adapt to your changing technology and your changing knowledge base, information base underneath it, right? Now, for well, all of those- That's the challenge today with the, the big utility owners that they've got yes. these huge systems in place. And then yes. these systems are always changing and always adapting to new technologies and new capabilities. And how do we manage these assets? So my background is information science. I approach this the way librarians have taught me to, right? Which is, right, their challenge is just like the phone was, Every I, from any phone I can reach any other phone, right? That's a big challenge. Their challenge is even larger. Structure information so it's available to everyone for every purpose, right? You see, you have Google echoing that honored, that time-honored librarian tradition, right? So when you pull information together, uh, it's important to look at it from the eyes of an archivist. What are you, and a library card, right? That's your, that's your key into a library. It's that original library card. Not all of it, just a little bit of it. So when I talk to people about asset management and try to position it, because first, it appears to be more work and not work they want to take on, right? If you're the, if you're the contractor or installer, it's not going to be your job to be operations or maintenance, right? So when you get to do something that contributes to something that's not your paycheck and in scope, you got to convince everybody, why does this matter to you? Right. And, and what makes it better? Yeah. Right. And what makes it better? So it becomes a very easy thing to sort out when I had a nice young man uh, who I was training for the go out to the contractor saying, this is new. We're beta testing this for the state. Uh, we're using it for our guide rail replacement contracts. And what we're going to have you do is take this handheld device with a Bluetooth connected antenna to up the positional accuracy a little bit. And we're going to put you out on the road. And when you are through installing that guide rail, you're going to collect some points, right? And you're going to fill in some data. And some of it you can do back in the office on your browser into our inventory. Some of it, like the position in the picture, you're going to want to do on site. So just do that while you're in harm's way out on the road or you're responding to something. It could be a maintenance person. It could be a contractor. The technology works the same way for both. But 
while you're there, get these points. And the young man was great. He said, I just spent uh, three hours in poison ivy trying to decide how much of this curved guide rail was actually the states and how much of it became the counties, right? Wow. When, when did that obligation to fix the rail end, right? And he wow. said, will I ever have to do this again if it's on the map? I said, no, young man. He said, awesome, because I know we'll be back in about four weeks to do it when it's had another accident and we have to replace it again, right? So he's all happy because now he realizes that that information improved his job. Right. Yeah. And it Amazing. important point for me is that there's a next generation coming up. They don't know the old, they don't know the old ways of doing business. And hopefully we won't be doing them the old ways anymore. And so how they want to interact with the data, with the information is, is fabulous. When I have interns come in, they pick up a phone, they know what to do with it, they open the browser, they're right there. And then asking me, why doesn't it do more, right? We have a very senior staff, a lot of senior staff in all of our uh, positions of decision-making and empowerment in government and in corporations. And we're not natives, you know. My value is to say, I think I could be pretty good at saying where everybody my age and older ought to get out of the way. Yep. So I'm looking through the New York State GIS Association at what we're going to need going forward for certification, for training, who's going to be doing it. All these, nobody calls it telephony anymore. They don't even call it telecommunications anymore. I've gone through... I really am. Not even telecom. Not even telecom. Right. I mean, so when you look at my resume, it's like, oh, you know. So a data scientist, I think that's the cool new one I can use. I'm trying it out. The issue is that it doesn't matter. In my career, I've had to validate what I know, right, and why I know it. And frankly, for the majority of my life, what does it mean to me lately? You know, you're, you're in the private sector. They don't care about what happened before. It's, can you help me now going forward? There's a, it's my crowd, especially the financial data services market. They had the money to pay for anything that would get them an extra couple milliseconds on the market to trade. Right. And you can't do that without real tight, real time control of your assets. Where, where they are, how they're behaving, how they're getting there. Now, is the construction crowd just kind of catching up with that kind of demand? I think it is. That's why when we build tools for the maintenance operation guys, it's, it is fairly real time, not an analysis, but the idea was the cheapest time, and that's what we learned in the industry from quality practices, the cheapest time to do it is when you're doing it, right? So you have the contractor and what we did in New York for our state contracts was to, and I believe it's a very important review process where they run what's called a pay item. So now we put out a contract, an RFP contract that people are going to bid on and they're going to find subcontractors and people to participate to do this huge bridge or road reconstruction contract, right? Every single thing, guide rail culverts, lights, whatever it is, all has a pay item. 
It says, this is what I'm buying. This is the complete description. That links back into the, uh, the, the detailed manual of what all this stuff actually is. If you're going to sell me guide rail, this is the spec for what guide rail has to be, right? So when you put a develop a pay item and get it in your contract, you've now given everybody, both the contractor and the state, a way to say, I put value on this activity and this is the standard for giving it to me. And the contractor gets to say, oh, does that mean I get to buy a brand new GPS unit? And the state says, absolutely budget for that if that's necessary for the contract compliance. Go right ahead. Build that right in. And frankly, in a 10 million, I think one of your other guests mentioned uh, that they had, uh, yeah, for a mere $10,000, I'm going to save you a million, right? Because I'm going to yeah. do the underground. Well, for a near $10,000, you're going to give me effectively uh, updated as it is because it's mostly repair and in kind and in place. So now I get my old inventory and I start to build that up and it's done in real time. So from an collect on the insurance, collect on the accident information, all of that data starts to become available for those other streams in the department that need that information. And, and importantly, the capital budget, because that's how you get that guide rail replaced. So the pay item becomes central to that. It's going through its approval process now. And this is where I'm, I'm going to quickly describe what we did for the state of New York and then have to confess, did you realize that this was an above ground thing? This has, other than my name, Sue, this is not a Sue project. This is roadside. <laughs> and in fact, it's embarrassingly only about, not embarrassingly, but absolutely unashamedly only about assets that you can see with the naked eye. So we'll talk about how that's even useful to getting us below the surface. But in the meantime, what we could get on the first pass was everything that we could see. So what we did was we took everything we see and we built an asset for each one. So if you're some highway lighting, you're in an asset. If you're a culvert, you're in an, you're in an asset, large ones, small ones. If you are guide rail, you're in an asset. If you are a sidewalk, you're in an asset. Right. And each one of those has a set of attributes that go with it. And some of those attributes include not just its installed date, but a reference to the guiding regulation at the time of installation. So, for example, is that regulatory compliant for that guide rail, that curve radius on that guide rail, the, the wattage and the lights? There are all these compliance issues that have to be done. But you only have to be compliant for the time that you was installed. They can't hold you accountable for a standard that wasn't in wow, place at the time, which yeah. really means a lot to the state when they end up going to court, right? So this data, it was absolutely one of our, all this project has taken years of a lot of commitment from a lot of New York State DOT. So I just got to be the one to light up the, hit the switch and have it come on statewide for the field, right? But Tom came to me and he, when my instructions were, go build for our region what Tom's story built for his county, right? And he said the most important thing will be the stop signs. 
because that's what gets that's why we have to go to court right and at any rate so we our assets include all of our and this for real time all of our traffic lights we really need to know when those go out in real time right so there's a so, lot Susie, of, just to just to give it yeah. some uh, to give it a headline the project was to create a gis map for the new york dot the yes yeah for okay. all of our roadside appurtenances assets yes so, so there what, ended up being about 19 of what what does that include what does that include uh okay it was built on an esri platform we built a feature class for each of the assets it's being delivered through a portal which has a the mynewyork.gov front end for authentication the pay item it directs them to use the portal to report their construction and maintenance activity that in, that inventory is, is then available to our internal maintenance systems to drive our operations forces and is available to the contractor so that they can run after construction reports uh it can sometimes and this is not a joke it can be sometimes very difficult to get paid for guide rail replacement items because it'll get damaged again before you've been paid for it and you have mm -hmm. to go to insurance to get the money back to build wow. it in again before so not surprised i gotta say but um yeah right so this kind of tool really has a benefit to the contractor and with a little experience everybody again the contractor understands where this has uh unintended good consequences for them right because they have more real-time access to where they are in addition to our our inspectors um having uh also access to that data where are you with the contract oh yeah i can see you've you've clicked install for all those things and you're that far up the road the signs are installed just, just, uh, just to clarify what type of assets are we talking about are we talking about uh, stop signs lighting are we talking all about of, yes all of them. in the right of way what, what are we talking about well not well if it's 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 what new york state owns so we to the extent that you consider the road a utility, it's everything about that road. Got it. What's on okay. it, how much it costs to build, who builds it, where is it with its regulatory compliance, what project is going there, how to bid that project for capital improvements and put it in a budget and a five-year plan. And would that include um, overhead uh, electricity and overhead telecom? Not at all. That's not our, that's, that's the utilities. That's not, got it. Right. Okay. Right. Got it. Now okay. that's, that's, if you want to jump to the bigger picture, there are folks at the DOT who will start to talk about and other, not just my DOT or former DOT, um, that if we thought of the right of way a little bit more as an integrated engineering object, we'd be better off, right? Uh, for each of us to be maintaining sep effectively separate records for this one space is getting a little silly in this day and age because we, we now have the ability to share data this way. We didn't before, but now we have to get there because it really makes much more sense. Uh, we, the DOT used to be furious with AT&T because they literally, or the cable companies were even worse. 
they just to pave the road, right? And then somebody would come around and ditch witch the middle of it to lay a new cable TV line, right? It's just ludicrous. So yeah. in addition to do you cut me, it's like you just chopped ears off of my useful life and uh, I can't even sue, right? It was sort of like baked into your right-of-way franchise. Well, maybe we should have thought a little more about what that meant. All of us learning how to play together uh, is very important, but I don't think we'll get there until we understand we need standards. Uh, when I was first working with AT&T, there was a moment of stunning revelation when I'm holding a cord in my hand, because it looks like an old cord board, and I'm talking with San Francisco, and I'm testing this circuit, and I realized that everything in my life, nothing in my life prepared me for standing inside the box, right? My training was, I, I had a box in front of me, I took off the cover, I took the screws off. Okay, there were vacuum tubes in there, all right? But I took off the box, I followed wires, and you know, I looked at a schematic and I knew how that box worked. No, I'm in the box. So nowadays when we're on right of way, it, we're, we need to think from that bigger perspective that you're just one part of an, a very important network of utilities. And what are utilities? They're natural monopolies we cannot live without. That's what makes them a utility. So if we can't live without them and the time we need the most is in the middle of a disaster and we have to be flexible and adaptable, both to restore service as quickly as possible, then the only way we're going to do that, if we have in hand, in real time, everything that just got demolished. But, but how so, do we... Sorry, I can't Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Go. I was going to ask, but, but how do we get the, the different networks to work together? How do we get uh, the, the, the telecom to work with uh, water and wastewater to work with the, the, the electric companies? Like... Like we, we can name them. Like how do we get AT&T to work with PG&E to work with uh, 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 ExxonMobil? Like how does that happen? And to work and to work with the DOT. <coughs> it it it. Okay, I brief brief bit about why this is complicated in terms of our regulatory environment. The first thing you have to do with any utility is ask yourself who regulates them and at what level is that? So in my world, a cable company was actually regulated by a municipal franchise agreement. So it's not even at the state level, right? Telephony was at the state level. You were part of the PSC, right? But the big carriers, the AT&Ts after divestiture, we're the long haul guys, we're the interlata, right? Not intralata, which was the local exchange companies. We're the interlata people and we're regulated only at the federal level. You go to wireless. Wireless came out of the radio world, right? So another part of the converging technology, right? But they're regulated by the FCC. So that's where radio and telephone, because we use microwave, right? Got, but we're also regulated at the state level for our actual services. 
So AT&T sort of straddled these, but only because they, they needed bandwidth and they needed to have regulated stuff for what they needed to do for long haul transmission. So now wireless comes in. Wireless is on a now on a 5G tower, which has the teeniest possible footprint you could imagine, right? You can't get any more local than going to stand under that street light, which has now got a street yeah. light and a 5G mount to yeah. it, right? And it's this little puddle of communication, right? But that's actually because it's wireless, it's regulated by the FCC. But you can't get any more local than that. But the state and the municipalities have no say in it because it's wireless regulated by the FCC. So now. So we have, we have just to make sure I understand. Yeah. We have one organization, and we're calling it AT&T, but AT&T is codenamed for any other operator, right? And they're regulated on the federal level. They're regulated on the no, state uh, level. No, it depends on the service. Remember, the internet isn't technically regulated well, by anyone. I mean, yeah, but I mean, we have one entity that has a variety of assets to, uh, to distribute a variety of services, right? But, but, at the end, but at the end of the day, the service is communication. And yet, we have a variety of organizations that are not regulating the... Uh, communication, they're regulating the value propositions of the service. Does that make sense? I believe I'm following you, but, but for utilities, it's the regulations that determine the value proposition, right? When one of your guests talked about it was, uh, they, it was very small margins to make money in the UDIG and the one call environment. All right. Yeah. So that's a regulatory compliance issue. That's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. To the extent that there's somebody funding them to make that happen and then legally empowering them to collect the data they need, put some teeth in it, one could argue you could go that way. But traditionally, it's the regulatory compliance that generates what kind of investment ends up happening and defining what their scope of I care for the operating my business, right? Why? So the wireless companies uh, don't, don't expect to have to uh, cover the whole world with broadband anymore. If anybody does that, it'll be Starlink, right? Their, their business is now seamless broadband communication in urban areas. That's what wireless in urban areas. What they're gonna do for rural will be de minimis. Right. So the when you ask why would they pull together and share data, you can do it through regulatory compliance. Just say starting now, you got to do it to a certain extent. That's what a pay item does. It's now formalized. If you put it in a contract, everybody knows how to comply because we've got an interface to an asset management inventory that they can use and uh, meet their obligation for that paid on. All right. Or what you get is something that's more voluntary, like deciding we're going to do an ethernet standard because we're tired of, you know, we're wasting too much money. So if you pulled those industries together, 
And they all de facto started to realize that they personally had a lot of money at stake because they don't have the standard in play. Then you can have a de facto industry standard. The trick is, is that the ones who made the de facto industry were all members of like ANSI. They were already part of a, of a standards or an industry organization that brought them out once a year to a big party, put them all in the same place where they could say, my gazinga doesn't play nicely with your gazinga and we're going to embarrass ourselves at interop next year <laughs> if we don't come up with, you know, who's male, yeah. who's female and, you know, what diameters yeah. we're working with. So yeah. these, I don't know that the, I have not found a reliable way for those standards to get talked about effectively. You've got uh, several groups out there that are giving it a try and the FHWA does come into play, but the states get their all their own money. And this is where my earliest point to you was why I'm frustrated is that all of this stuff was designed to improve productivity. Do it once for the masses, baby. All of it, right? Greatest good, greatest number, any phone to any other phone, any computer, any other computer. And no, what we've got right here is we've got, we passed one federal law and now 50 states have to come up with the money to code a system that'll actually allow them to operationalize what that federal law did. And they're not given any money to do it. And they're, my law would be my fix. Nobody can write a law unless they can code it and put up the money for it. Because I will tell you, I have read regs you cannot code. It, it becomes if then else nightmare and the dependencies are totally certain. I'm not joking, right? And, and then it's, yeah, you're in compliance, but, and then you can go on from there. It is the kind of thing that drives contractors and anybody who's re responsible for giving a bid a nightmare. You know, how much is buried in there? So at any rate, my personal goal now is to stand on the other side of the of the state firewall, say we built a perfectly scalable tool. I can't control the fact that the feds don't just build a tool when they come out with the obligation. But in New York State, we to meet that federal obligation, we built this tool. And so now let's open it up to all the municipalities in New York State. I think it can work. Lots of people that help build it, we think it can work. And we think we can do it for pennies on the dollar. And I. Uh, the city that I'm hoping will become a beta test site to prove this in, you know, get some ideas of training required dollars, scalability, prove all that in. And I figure their guys are going to be just as happy out on the road to use it as our guys were right in the end, work with them and train them and they'll be just yeah. as happy provided yeah. they're supported and all those other things, reasons why rollouts fail, right? This is just like any other new technology that can have rollout death. But I think working with the municipalities and the local governments consolidates the heart of the state to keep using new tools because the next crowd coming in, that's how they'll want to do it. The young kids don't, honest to God, our stuff, I'm still, critical records are still on microfiche. I haven't heard the, the word microfiche in a long time. Uh, uh, it's, it's best in class for some of our records right now. Yep. So what the new crowd's going to want 
and they can see it and you give them the right tool and it's going to happen. So I'm very excited about the opportunity to uh, work with a couple of groups in the state to try and get a beta trial kicked off. Again, it's all above ground uh, for our viewers. The first thing they're going to say is nobody likes a blank inventory. It's so useless. Nobody wants to play with it because especially in our crowd, they make us because we go around in the phone company. It was called a shiny lug count. All of a sudden, somebody would panic and say, we don't actually know what's spare or free in the racks. So they'd send an army of us out. And then literally, it's called shiny lug because you look to see if it was soldered to anything. <laughs> and you check the box. If it's soldered to something, it must be in service. We're not quite sure, but we think so. Incredible. So Incredible. It's, the, it's the same idea. You, the state would need shiny lug count. And they'd send people out to count how many of this or that there were because maybe they needed to be replaced. And then we'd present all that data up to the state office. They'd work their capital magic and it would come. But all the data was gone. It, was, it never got operationalized. And they could ask for the wow. same thing three years later, you know, slightly wow. differently. So the inventory ends all of that. They can ask their own questions. They want to know how many lights in that city? Go ahead. Do the query. Pull it up. Ask any question yeah. you want. And I'd like that for the municipalities. My city's only 6,000 people. It, it is cruel and unusual to think that they'll be able in any reliable way to keep up with the platform changes that are going on. They just, let alone afford to buy it to begin with. So they need a shared services agreement if they're ever going to have access to what it takes to run things in the 21st century. So we're giving that a go. We'll see how we go. And, uh, I will let you know. I could check back given timelines, right? It'll be two years before I know whether it's we're making progress. <laughs> what, what do you think that, that other cities can, uh, can take away from this? What do you think that they, they should be picking up from what you're describing, from the, from the beta, from the, 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 the overall idea? Like, what, what would be the biggest lessons learned that you think that that anyone kind of entering such a complex project should be aware of? You can't do emergency response effectively without good real-time data of what resources are available. Your biggest resource is your people, the people who know how to use the technology and are in place on the ground with the right tools in their hands. And we, I know what our emergency capability was 30 or 40 years ago. We do not have that anymore. And the responses to a, a need to respond to a disaster of any kind is only increasing, both in scale and in diversity. Windstorm one day, flooding another, uh, uh, sinkhole the next, right? Different yeah. things, but you, from the point of view of what you've got to know in order to respond, uh, your need has only increased. There was, uh, uh, you're probably familiar with the storm that was in Texas, uh, where, where the, um, if I'm not mistaken, the gap, not this year, I think it was a year ago or two years ago, 
where um, a, the gas basically froze in the pipes, and the get. I, I hope that I'm not uh, uh, I'm not being misaccurate, but basically, uh, uh, some people, a lot of people, lost access to their utilities, whether it was electricity or gas or, or whatever it was, and there was a whole incident of. Uh, the utility owners were trying to, to fix the situation, but they weren't able to tell which utilities are jammed up and which utilities are dysfunctional because they weren't yes, managing right. their assets. Correctly. That's right. That's right. So one of the virtues of the, the phone or the telecommunications design, the old phone company, and I think some of it still exists, is that uh, there was always the traffic layer of the network, and then there was the meta layer of the network, which is I'm the puppet master controlling where things are going and how they're getting there, right? Uh, to a certain extent, the digital world does that in, in band because the packet header tells it what to do. It says, I need to go here and I don't particularly yeah, care yeah. which way you send me, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the server's job to know that the particular path is down at the moment, go another way, right? So it fixes itself in line. But there are still, you still need the capacity, especially in the early construction days, to have this auxiliary network to communicate over. Could be ham radio. Uh, the first thing you always do with a new fiber line is put a literally a single phone on it because you need, it's the quickest way to develop communication back to the central office. So you've got this whole fiber, which will eventually carry thousands of phone calls. And it's really just a hoot and holler so you can talk to the central office while you're connecting the rest of it. So that, where is your communications path in an emergency? Right now, when we have an emergency, the cell network crashes. End of story. That is not your way to get help. Right? Because it wasn't built with that obligation. Right? We get rid of landlines, but when we do that, what we also got rid of was the obligations they had at the time which was to always let widows and orphans get to 911 in the fire company. You know, it was that safety and security bit. All right. So, uh, it, it's amazing that all the, all the utility owners, all the asset managers are dealing with the same challenges because, because it all, it all comes down to like, I love this phrase that we use, used in an episode that I recorded, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago. And we were talking about the resilience of the grid in Texas. And I think that's what it comes down to. Which grid? Their energy grid? Their gas their grid? Energy, their, their energy grid. Exactly. And well, it you're... all comes down. I, I, I think that every network, and it doesn't matter if it's, uh, it's like you said at the beginning, we're talking about utilities. This is what makes humanity tick. And all these networks must be resilient, not just in, in case of disaster, but even in the day-to-day, -day, like if there's some, some sort of malfunction like that, that can impact people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So how can you fast, You can, and you uh, first mitigate it so it doesn't cascade? We've all seen events of disasters where actually it starts to cascade. Right, your electric network goes out, which means you've lost your your uh, command of the of the uh, Internet of Things that's running your gas network. Right, you've lost all yeah. of your gauges that tell you what's going on where. 
Yeah. I uh, I want to just bring up one good example of why right of way and utilities. Maybe it's insurance that ends up motivating everyone. Surely it should motivate the state because we do end up being the insurer of last resort in disasters, right? Everybody, yeah. it's, mu it's music to everybody, everybody's ears when they say a national disaster has been declared. That means you probably won't be out of pocket for everything that just got wiped away. Yeah. But I'll share with you why it's important. When we, when Katrina happened, right? Um, that surge wiped out everything to the point where it was the surface of the moon. So things that you could tell from above ground, you couldn't find below ground, right? There's no gas station there anymore. Where is that buried tank of gas? There, and there are no landmarks anymore, right? So where are we? There was, so up through the GIS side of the house, we decided it would probably be very useful to use the USNG, the United States National Grid Reference System, as part of an asset ID. So give it some letters, gas tank, right? And then part of the asset, unique asset identifier, which is always a big thing when you're trying to do integration between systems. What do you mean your asset is number one? So's mine. Oh, how can we put our tables <laughs> ah, And it's, you know, it's one of those hair on fire integration moments. Okay, you start with that number, I'll way down in the mud, but when you talk about interoperability and being able to move data back and forth, you've now got to put it in a data structure that allows you to do that. How do you aggregate it successfully, keep its uniqueness and make it play nicely together, especially when you're doing that patchwork quilt kind of thing, right? To upgrade your data. So upgrade your data. The USNG national, by using that in your asset identifier, it does a couple of cool things. It automatically makes it unique can go into that later. But what it also does is it means that responders from out of state, any responders trained by the military, any responders yeah. who are Can firemen, they, right? They all know where it is. So just from the asset ID alone, because really, what if you're going to have one printed printout because, oh, I can't get to the cloud because the power is down, right? What's your paper? Yeah. What's your backup in case of these guys love printing out uh, paper maps, because that's what needs to go in the truck, right? They don't know. So at any rate, USNG is an asset identifier. When we start to get down to that level, where we know that we can bring data sets together on an asset and and reconcile them, then you start to have an, act, an active standard that you can develop between utilities, right? I've got a manhole cover, right? That's not really my problem, but it is because it's in my right of way. And in the middle of winter, if I can tell them where that manhole cover is and they've got a problem, then they're putting that backhoe down, digging through the snowbank, and they're on the manhole cover as opposed to, oh my God, where is it? And having to move the whole bank before you can get to the manhole. So I need that because I can't be closing down a whole road while they look for it. <laughs> As simple as that. And, and they may or may not have that information. But if they've got better information than me, well, now we should be sharing our data, right? Yeah. And I've, I own the light pole, so I'm going to inventory that light pole on the parkway. But everything underground starts to be 
the electric companies, right? They've, they've, they still own that. Even if, even if I own what is attached to it because of an ancient agreement that nobody even remembers why we did it that way, to be quite frank. And hopefully we still have the documentation of it. Well, that's the other fun thing about an asset inventory. Again, wearing the librarian hat. All I need is a link back into my best digital record. And that asset record becomes my library card to the job, to the asset. And now I can get as deep as I want, or I can extrapolate and do analysis. How fast are those lights going out, by the way? I thought they were supposed to be LEDs and last forever. Right? Susie, as as we come towards uh, the end of our episode, we we normally end with uh, with two questions, two core questions. The first is, what would be in one sentence... What do you think is the biggest takeaway from the message that you're um, bringing, pushing to the industry? Our public sector needs to be using the most advanced tools that we have on offer. They deserve that. So we need to find a way to get those tools to our public servants and to our municipalities in a way that can be supported and maintained. So that one, just that one would, would do me just fine. We will not survive as a democracy if everybody continues to think that corporations and the private sector is the only way to go because they can get the job done and they can be more efficient. The public sector right now operates with both of their arms tied behind their back. In a corporation, when you find a better way to do it, all you have to have is a reorganization, which can be brutal enough. But one example is you will but find a chief information officer on in the C-suite. If you take a look at our government, there is no CIO in the C-suite. Wow. Right. That's uh, that's mind-blowing. To local, there's it's no one's job right that's now. Absolutely right. To make nobody, that integration, nobody else is unbelievable. There's it's so, just so a correct. big gap. The lawyers love paper. The lawyers structure our laws. We are algorithm people. We're engineers. We can't help it. Even when it's written on paper, it's a cookbook. It's an algorithm, right? It is. That's what that's what on the job training is all about. Oh yeah, I know which OJ. I know which manual to use. When you that's look at our regulatory and our political environment, and then you look at the context in which those regs were all done, it's it. It's well. It's wrong, for the way that technology works these days. It's just clearly become so retro that uh, our regulatory bodies don't even know how to approach the issue because they don't know whether they're in scope or not because it's all running over the internet. So now maybe nobody's regulating it. Is it nobody's job anymore? Is that okay? Where would you put it if you needed to regulate it? So it's, it's non-trivial in the executive structure of all three levels of government in the United States to take another look at this environment. 
because otherwise the public sector will be crushed. People will just wow. take our right away away from us and we need our right away for all sorts of reason and it needs to stay in the public sector. But it, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that <laughs> and, was my rant. One, one, more, one more question. Who do you think we should have on next on our podcast? There's a, a Ari Isaac and I'm sorry, my, my folks are all above ground, but I think he can get below ground for you now. Uh, Ari Isaac uh, started a wonderful company. He was uh, the first contractor to come in and be the sub for pay item 626 in the state of New York. He, uh, his company is, has grown wonderfully across the United States. His focus is on LED conversion. So he has some nice things to say about what we need to do uh, to, well, save small blue-green planets and and meet some UN SDG goals while we're at it. But I'd I'd think Ari would be a lovely person to talk to about what it takes to have a startup, what it looks like 15 years later, and having been uh, very early in riding this wave of understanding that GIS and the cloud platform can really enable all sorts of stakeholders. Uh, I used his online YouTube video whenever I was trying to get somebody to understand what I was doing. I used his YouTube video to explain it to people. So that would be, and then uh, if you want to go uh, uh, more underground, the, the numpty stuff, we could do that. That's done by our uh, companion organization, Gizmo, and in New York, and they're they're the ones trialing that uh, that new standard. So uh, maybe we'll we'll talk after that after after this episode and see how we can uh, put this together. So uh, I really Susie, appreciate the opportunity. It was it was a incredibly interesting episode. I think uh, uh, he brought us into the the nuts and bolts of what asset asset management really is. What are the uh, what's, what stands behind it, what, what, what basically uh, has created the, the, I don't want to say situation, but has created the, the reality that we're now operating in. And I think you've given a lot of value to our listeners uh, who, are come, who are coming at this from the uh, civil engineering, uh, general contractor side. Uh, so I'd like to, to thank you for that. Well, I know they avoid regulation at all costs. It sometimes defines their client market. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, David. I I appreciate the chance to talk Thanks. with your listeners. And I recommend to everyone out there, the back catalog's awesome. Please go take a look at who's spoken before. Oh, oh, oh.